When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Once again, it's time to delve into the imbalanced history of rock and roll. I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And you know, Marcus, we always have a good time no matter what we talk about here on the podcast. And it's due in part to the fact that we always know that our sponsors have our back at Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com and a Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, almost 10 years now. And they've been sponsoring the podcast for a good chunk of that. So thanks, guys, as we get into this week's subject. It's about construction. When you want to get from one side of something to the other side of something, you need a bridge. We have some great bridges here in the Philadelphia area, constructed to connect Pennsylvania and New Jersey. That's not what we're connecting today, but we are building bridges from the base on one side and all the way over to the other side. Except for in this case, the base on one side is the 80s, and on the other side is the 90s. It's the bridge to the 90s here on The Imbalance History. It's a long way to go, but you probably have a thought or two about this whole thing, too. Yeah, this time period, late 80s, was really important for rock and roll. You had the big hair bands who were really mainstream, and you had the thrash metal that was making a lot of noise. You had the alternative, you had the post-punk, and some of those uh, areas in the alternative scene included the new romantic era, the goth, you know, you had so much movement. You had bands like Husker Du breaking up, you had bands like The Replacements, so many other bands bands making noise all over the place but there were four bands that i think were really big catalysts in this transition period as rock continually evolves and it was evolving at this time and those four bands i think really taking us into the 90s in a special way living color the cult jane's addiction and faith no more And we know there's so many other bands that are important in this scene and in this picture, but these four bands really stand out to us in a lot of ways. And as we go through talking about the four bands that we're focused on, we'll also bring up some other bands that kind of fit into the puzzle as we go, Marcus. And there's never a straight line to anything in rock and roll. We have learned that long before we started the podcast. But it's really clear now that we're into it four plus years, you know? Yeah, and it's taken us on some wild rides and some crazy journeys, and we've learned some pretty incredible things along the way. And when you do an episode like this, you relearn things that you've heard three decades ago, and you remember things you learned 35 years ago. I'm doing it all the time with this stuff. I really am. 
and hopefully you'll learn a few things as well because there are little things that are coming out nowadays thanks to books and biopics and documentaries that are giving us other bits and pieces of information that kind of complete the picture. It's funny that you should mention the number 35 because 35 years ago, as we're recording this, Living Color, one of the bands we're talking about, released their debut album, Vivid, and it instantly became a thing for me, and apparently you too, and it became long-term one of our favorite all-time albums. Oh, without a doubt, one of my all-time favorite albums, and I remember hearing cult of personality and then seeing the video and being blown away and then after seeing the video and hearing the song they played the commons area where i was in school at the time and they just smashed the crowd it was incredible it was released in may and i think until the rockers show started in august of 88 michael tierson was playing it first in philadelphia and maybe on the east coast on his what's new show and i know he played a couple different tracks from that so it'd be fun to have him on sometime to talk about that it's one of the many things he did in radio yeah that guy did a lot of good things for radio not only in philadelphia but nationwide so that's got me thinking about an anniversary and vivid and the impact that it made when we started in august we were getting into other tracks beyond the cult of personality because they were kind of breaking the uh, seal with that and getting regular rotation you know getting hurt all the time so you know me marcus i'm always trouble this way i started playing middleman or glamour boys or what's your favorite color baby you know what's your Absolutely. You had so many choices on that record. You had Open Letter to a Landlord, Memories Can't Wait, Desperate People as well. Just great tunes. And I Want to Know is one of my favorite songs, period, let alone on that record. Oh, that song's beautiful and so different than the rest of the songs on the album, but it fits perfectly where it is, located between Cult of Personality and Middleman. And so there they are in 88, launching into 89. And in that time, they went from playing the Chestnut Cabaret. I think I saw them at least once there, maybe both times they played there. And then after that, the next time I saw them, they were on stage with the Rolling Stones opening the Steel Wheels tour, which was kind of a mind blower for somebody who had been trying to support them right from the beginning, which was only about a year and a half before. 
What was the name of the Ardmore Music Hall before it was the Ardmore Music Hall? Because they played there as one of their first times in Philadelphia as well, and I can't remember the name of that club. It was the 23 East. Yes, 23 East. Because that's the address, 23 East Lancaster Avenue. Yeah. Took off fast after that, man. And by the time they got around to the next record, which seemed to come up right away, time's up. We were perched and ready for them with the Rockers crew on our Sunday night show, playing new Jack Bean. I really like someone like you and my favorite solace of you one of my favorites in the entire living color songbook when it hurts to be out there where i know what i care i've got the solace of you frustrated by the people's lying but i keep on trying That's one of my favorites as well in the entire Living Color songbook. Just a perfectly beautiful ballad. But I also love Type. I also love Love Rears Its Ugly Head. It's a sort of comical look, or not really a comical look, but maybe... Cheeky? Cheeky look at love. So they're on a roll, man. This is one of the things about them is that at this point, it's like they're going bam, bam, right from 88, right through the artificial barrier of 1990. It brings you around the stain, which really cemented them in my mind as a band that could straddle all the lines of funk and rock and cool. Songs like Go Away or Ignorance is Bliss, like openly calling people out like they did in Landlord, right? Yeah, they had no problem calling society out for its uh, ills towards other people. A very kind band and very kind humans. And that comes across in their songs, as you mentioned. Also, you have Mind Your Own Business. You have Bye. You have WTFF, you have Hemp, This Little Pig. I mean, these songs are also 
relevant today, they've written them in such a way where they still work. So there's one out of the four bands that we're really focused on here this week on the podcast, the one and only, the immortal Living Color. And no matter which way the wind blows for them, Living Color just keeps on going, Marcus. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of bands can't do or forget to do. Just keep going, man. Yeah, Corey still sounds great when he sings live. I saw them a couple of years ago, and they're still writing new music. They've released a bunch of albums. And as we have learned in our many years in radio and talking to other bands, many musicians cite these cats as a major influence. And you hear it in their sounds, too. What I'd like to ask them is, who were their influences while they were coming together as a band starting in 84 or so? Back then, who were they plugged into? That's a great question. I would <laughs> love to know that, too. We're talking about taking that confounded bridge over to the 1990s. And so far, we've talked about one of our favorite bands from this period, Living Color. Another band that we both have an affinity for, I would say from a different angle, is number two in this little thing. They were called the cult. And at first they kind of were, but it really wasn't a cult because so many people got involved, if you get me. Absolutely. And they started more post-punk and goth in that early days, and their sound evolved into a more straight-up rock. They were doing more complex layerings and filling the space with a much deeper, bigger sound at that time. As the band progressed, you will hear more of Billy Duffy's guitar greatness in their sound because it really helped them start kicking ass in their straight, dirty rock and roll that they were laying out. I think what they really were doing was starting from a bass with that first album, and each one kind of built a layer or a wing of what they were trying to do leading up to 1989 Sonic Temple, and that's the period where they're getting ready to turn the corner on that artificial year, right? As the bridge is being built, there they are making the Sonic Temple. And if you look at Dreamtime and Love, they kind of build on what the bass is from that debut album and shows the root of their true sound as they're developing. I think She Sells Sanctuary is really the best example of what I'm trying to say here. I agree, and Spirit Walker from that first album, I think, is the song that really shows us what direction the yeah, cult would like, eventually go in because that guitar is so sexy and it's just so nice, and Ian's really laying it out vocally. things that I relearned reading up for this episode is that Ian had a real big love-hate relationship with the press in the UK. They either were really hot for him or they were really, really cold with him. And he was really polarizing with the media, which I think they thought was very snotty and very elitist when it came to music. And they just wanted to play. Yeah, I think they just wanted to play the music they were making, not be put in a box mm -hmm. and let it evolve and see how many people liked it. I think it worked out pretty well for them.
of them. I would have to agree with you. And I know we mentioned Sonic Temple, but we cannot deny the importance of Electric either. With yes, I was getting there. <laughs> because this album changed their sound completely and it blew them up big time. When I first heard Love Removal Machine and they told me it was the new cult record, I was like, whoa, they're taking chances and doing different stuff. And I thought it was so cool. And then I got to hear how they loaded up for Sonic Temple with Sun King and Fire Woman, which was the big hit. And I really dig Edie because it's just different and he uses a different part of his voice and it's still really good music. And Sweet Soul Sisters, kind of like that, you know, trademark sound from that record, too. Soul Sisters, my absolute favorite jam on that album, big time. I worked at a station in Denver that played that song, and it was so much fun every time it came on. Another great one, New York City. They had a big love for New York City, and making it in America was very important to this band. There was something about the appeal of America to them. Watching it happen in stages and then seeing the epitome of it with Sonic Temple as we're turning the page into 1990, all I can tell you is it was a pretty cool way to see everything that was going on from the front row or the cheap seats or the bar. Wherever I got to stand to see a show, you could see so much amazing stuff happening almost every night in this time period we're talking about. Standing there in the middle of the bridge, I was out two, three nights a week. Sometimes two shows a night. Oh, I remember those young days. In 1985, a bunch of Los Angeles miscreants got together. They really did. And they really shook things up. And they still do. Whenever they get together, any combination of them seems to stir shit up. I'm talking about the one and the only Jane's Addiction. Their story is an absolute trip, especially in the early days. And they were incredible. They were an intense, hardworking band, sometimes practicing eight, nine hours a day. The name they settled on, Jane's Addiction, was in honor of Farrell's housemate, Jane Bainter, whose heroin addiction proved to be a sort of twisted source of inspiration for the band. It also provided mystique and ambiguity. And those are things that are very important to Perry Farrell and his art. They were living in a crazy communal type of environment with a bunch of other musicians and I guess it was pretty wild but they worked really hard and they really really were tired of the LA glam rock scene and thought that rock needed a big overhaul because it was time and those were Perry's words in a classic Bum Sundays interview that I had read just some good thoughtful stuff from him they were four guys with long pins in a room full of balloons, and they were set on breaking them all. Well, I got to tell you, as soon as I heard about this band from my pal, Terrible Terry White, I went, this is different. They're from L.A., huh? 
It was that live album that we were talking about earlier from 87. And of the songs on there, some would make it to nothing shocking in a studio setting. But some of those songs didn't make it over there and they were really cool. And I really enjoyed the fact that I was able to play them before anybody knew who they were. It was fun for me, you know? I am so glad that I listened to that live concert from 87 because the early versions of Mountain Song and Ocean Size are incredible. Pigs in Zen, it's just wild to see how, before they released their first album, prepared they were to release that first album. Their songs were crafted, they were put together, they were complete, and they just needed somebody in the studio with them to tweak what they had to make it a little bit better. You know, you really can see exactly what you're saying. Good observation. Now, a couple of songs that didn't make it to the final cut were on this live album, and when we got our hands on it, we played them. I remember playing Trip Away and the uh, live version of Pigs and Zen and 1%. We didn't play Whores because that is the least offensive word in the whole song. So <laughs> even then, we knew we shouldn't do that on, you know, FCC-oriented way or But if you go back and listen to that live show, the guitar solo in Whores is fantastic. And Dave Navarro is an exceptional guitar player. And you hear how good he is back then. Not only with his playing, but with his feel. You can feel it, too. And the screaming Mountain song on this demo is nuts. The whole thing shows what Jane's Addiction is about to become, and, and they're ready to take that next step. You can hear it. If you listen, you don't even have to try. It's right there with those songs, just ready to go, like you said. And then they unleashed Nothing Shocking on Us. And that album had such a huge influence on the change. Oh, yeah. direction huge influence i remember listening to this album and being like what the fuck is this i love this and never got a chance to see him live until a couple of years later the Lollapalooza shows were the first time i got to right. see jane's addiction which i'm sad that i didn't get to see them in an intimate atmosphere because it would have been nuts the album starts off with up the beach and rolls into ocean size and just kicks your ass right away Standing in the Shower Thinking is hilarious and had a dad. I mean, just a great album all the way through. So good. There's no weak spots. It's a great album all the way through. And my favorite part, when summertime rolls, rolls into Mountain Song. The other band that's in this equation, and just because they're the fourth one we're talking about doesn't mean anything. I'm talking about Faith No More 
or what were they called at the beginning? Originally, before the lineup that we know Faith No More as, it was called Faith No Man. You sent me a link to Quiet in Heaven, and you can definitely hear what they're going for and that they're really close. I like that. Thanks for sending that link. Yeah, that first bit of music by Faith No Man before they became Faith No More had more of a Joy Division or a Bauhaus vibe to it. And it's far different from what they released when they released Introduce Yourself with Chuck Mosley and the album that really made a lot of noise with We Care A Lot. And it's a wild story, too. Sometimes the great stories have to be saved for another day and put into an episode just about the band. And any one and all four of these bands should be getting their own episode at some point. If we do this podcast long enough, Marcus. I hope we can, man. Most people first heard of Faith No More when they saw the fish flopping, gasping for air at the end of the video for Epic, right? Absolutely. alternative and college radio world were familiar with We Care A Lot because I think that's where it got more play. A little bit of MTV, maybe on 120 Minutes and stuff like that, but I don't know how much noise that made before Epic on MTV, but boy, we were loving that on college radio. Yeah, and it became part of the backbone of the band, which helped them to build the fan base. Really, the deep tracks on these albums... Especially on the Breakthrough album, The Real Thing, all those tracks on there really gave them a great base for the fans. So as they move forward, and they did in quite fine fashion for a number of years, they created their own little fan thing, you know, their own little bubble in rock and roll where everybody spoke the language, everybody knew about the songs, half of them had seen Mr. Bungle. You see what I'm saying, right? Absolutely. Falling to Pieces showed the roots were connected to Sabbath and War Pigs, and then they recorded that. If you listen to songs like Surprise You're Dead and, you know, you hear that real punk uh, vibe in the album as well. So you hear their influences that are all over the place. What about the sort of weird progressive vibe in Woodpecker from Mars, the instrumental at the end of the album? Oh, yeah. You know how it goes. Parties, 
the album's playing, everybody's getting their own tipsy at the end of the night, and then that song would come on, and I never could fucking remember what the title was. And it's just one of my favorite little riffs, you know? And this band definitely liked to shake shit up and do things their way, and I have a lot of respect for them. They didn't really uh, conform to the labels, and they didn't conform to the mainstream music scene at all. They did it their way, and they're like, hey, if you want to join us for the ride, please do. If not, fuck off. We don't care. And that's one of the many things that I love about their attitude. And they stuck around for a good chunk of the 90s. They did some funny stuff. Their take on the theme, the Midnight Cowboy, or uh, the Commodores Easy really got them a wider audience and didn't offend their own fans, which is kind of a cool thing to be able to pull off. I know it sounds funny, but I just can't stand the pain. Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow. I saw them in a small club do Easy Live, and the crowd went absolutely fucking bananas. It was wild. I'm so lucky I got to see them like five or six times in the 90s, both at small, intimate venues and at a couple of arenas, and I love them dearly. It's surreal when you see a crowd singing along to Easy especially five minutes after singing along and pumping their fists in the air to be aggressive. <laughs> be aggressive be aggressive such oh, fun man. shows and what are the uh, always all that adds up to why they're part of our big four of the bands that were the basis for building the bridge from the 80s to the 90s for the hard rock and alternative crowd and the streams began to merge, which is part of what we'll be talking about in the second half of this week's episode. I think it's time to pause and refresh our socks and our palettes and get back to it here. On the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Thanks, as always, to Boldfoot Socks for sponsoring the podcast. And boy, oh boy, they've got some big doings, and we've got Josh. Yeah, Josh ran a 100K race 
in the socks that he wore the year before, and they held up just as well the second time. And here's the man, Josh Law, on his latest adventure. The Aravapai 100 miler. All right, so we just hit mile 25, which means we are one-fourth of the way done. We just passed mile 40. Still feeling all right. Just crossed over the 80-mile barrier. Starting to get there. It's also starting to hurt a little bit. Let's go, Josh. Finish it out. Don't forget to go to boldfoot.com and check out the socks that they have. American grown, American sewn. And you know they're road tested by Josh himself. (laughs) They're your feet. Be bold. Ah, springtime, Marcus, and the warmer weather means the doors are going to be open. People are going to be drinking those crooked eye brews outside, enjoying the atmosphere of the warmer weather as the weather turns towards the beautiful part of spring. But between here and there, they're keeping it rocking inside, too, at Crooked Eye, right there in the heart of Hapro. And we thank them for their support for about a million years now on the Imbalance History Podcast. With the weather getting nice, that means they're going to line up some really beautiful spring type of beers for you and I to enjoy when you sit outside and enjoy the weather at Crooked Eye. They also have cocktails. They have food. So much more. It is a great place to hang out. And the entertainment is ongoing. Every night there's something going on, including my vinyl night, the second Tuesday of every month. Grab some friends, come on around right there off of York Road in Montgomery. It's Crook and I Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Always a good time to be had and a new friend to be made. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Ray and Marcus back from the break and ready to talk about the bridge we're building here. 
looks pretty sturdy to me, man. I don't, I don't feel funny about standing on it or letting people walk or drive over it so far. I mean, look at the bands we have. There are four beast bands, Faith No More. You have Jane's Addiction, The Cult, and Living Color, and that's a hell of a foundation. And there are a lot of people who say that Faith No More was one of those bands that really got the whole quote-unquote new metal scene or movement going in the 90s. And it makes sense that those bands evolved from bands like Faith No More that were tearing it up in their time and just taking it and taking it and making it their sound. You know, you had the grunge sound of the Seattle sound, we should say, and all of the bands that were coming out of Seattle, the Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, but you also had like Grunt Truck, you had the Gits, you had the Riot Girls and their sound. So there was all this stuff that was splitting off of the mainstream alternative and the mainstream metal, which both were doing really well at the time, might we add. I got to tell you, though, it got so splintered at one point, people being people, and this is not in a good way, people started looking at each other funny at things like, what are you doing at this concert? You don't like that music. You like this. And putting people and music into boxes. And it's a byproduct of people and the way they view it. And I really wish that we could back off it in a big way and just enjoy what it is. And in this case, I think, the next two examples are prime to show why we're right. Speaking of prime, how about Primus? Now, these guys didn't start out with the lineup we all know them for. It happens. But you try taking Les and Lair and Herb, or Herb, and try to split them up. There's going to be a fight. I'll tell you that. <laughs> First time I saw them was the uh, Gathering of the Tribe show, and it was just at the uh, time Sailing the Seas of Cheese came out which was my first experience with Primus. Ah, what a great live band, night in and night out. I got sucked into the madness right before that with uh, Suck On This in 89. You know, we got everything sent to us on the Rocker Show, and I put it on right away. I was like, well, this is definitely different. I found the song I could play. When I got Frizzle Fry, I was ready to go, and I was like, this is going to be so much fun. I am the Frizzle Fry. Just the sheer madness being treated as if it's not it's just great and then they get signed to a major label at Interscope, right and they put out sailing the seas of cheese it is total hooey elevated to a whole nother level and one of the reasons why i love them so much jerry was a race car driver Did you ever in your life as a small kid playing with race cars on the floor in your house ever think that you'd be a fan as an adult of a song by that title? No. <laughs> and did you think it would go platinum? Because it did? Oh, I believe it did. That album's brilliant, and that song is so fantastic. Tommy the Cat. Hey, the other thing is less recognizing his role and place in the big rock and roll universe, hooking up with Sean Lennon and their whole thing he's just a cool dude that gets that there can be art inside this crazy thing where people make money 
Again, they're the band that does it their way. There's nobody in this business that can say, you guys should do it this way. They know what they want to do. They know what they've wanted to do, and they just fucking do it. And I think they fish a lot, too. Another band that looks at life the same rock and roll way might be the Pixies with Black Francis, Joey Santiago, Kim Deal, who would later go on and form a whole other band with her sister, right? And uh, David Lovering on the drums. They changed alternative. They really did at this turning point. They started in 86 through into the 90s. They helped to change the way things were getting done. They brought the indie underground vibe to the major labels. I'm not sure they were comfortable with that, but that's what they did. And they were doing a lot of the same stuff on the East Coast that Jane's Addiction was doing down in L.A. and kind of creating chaos in the uh, underground scene. In their own scene, right. And there were bands that were doing it before that even that were part of the changeover from the 80s into the 90s. Chief on my list is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They formed up in 82. They did their debut album and Freaky Styling with George Clinton. And I caught up to them right before the Uplift MoFo party plan. You know, Fight Like a Brave and Party on Your Pussy, the special secret song. I'm using the air quotes, Marcus. And uh, the big hit from them, the first song most people heard, Behind the Sun. They also do a wicked cover of Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues on the Uplift MoFo Party Plan. It's a banging record, the Uplift MoFo Party Plan is, and it's sadly the last record that Hillel Slovak would play on with the band before succumbing to his heroin addiction. And then they added Fushante and added a little oomph to their sound in the late 80s with Mother's Milk, and they too, like Faith No More with their style, are progenitors of that quote-unquote new metal sound because they fused the using punk and the quote marks funk. a lot this week, dude. I, know. I don't know, man. We, we might have to. to go to quote marks anonymous. I'll call him tomorrow. <laughs> but seriously, think about it. Because of the way capitalism categorizes music and other things, we have to use these labels when it's really all people bending rock and roll to their style or their sound. Hey, can I throw Soundgarden into this blender? Starting in 84, going through their changes, they did Ultra Mega OK on SST. And that really started things happening for them in 88 and it opened doors and sonic barriers were being removed because of that kind of music that they were making. And I also had a thought that Mother Love Bone was taking the bridge, got lost on the way, and then came back around as Pearl Jam to make the crossing into the 90s. And Alice in Chains came together in 87 before becoming what they become. I still remember hearing Facelift for the first time and being blown away by its darkness and its heaviness and hearing Man in the Box on a radio station in Denver called KZY, which is no longer with us. It was like a WMMR in Denver, Colorado. And we were blown away by what we were hearing. We're like, holy shit, what is this? It's so new and it's so different. And in one of those early interviews, I got to read about this band as I was learning about them. It was either Lay 
Lane or Jerry that said that they were a glam band in drag. And that is such a great way to describe their sludgy, <laughs> dark-ass sound. But you do hear the glam influence as well as the Sabbath influence in there. We got our first taste of this band with We Die Young. They sent out a single for metal. just so many great songs on that first album that i just love just instinctively i can't even explain it and their role in getting all this going along with soundgarden out of seattle but in general taking rock and alternative vibes and pushing them together any way you can around that bend into 1990 they're there doing it and there's another band marcus that i want to put in the equation here and they would be considered old timers comparatively to the other people we're talking about i'm talking about suicidal tendencies who came together in 80 started recording in 83 and really impacted crossover between thrash and metal and punk once they made the move to epic records with lights camera revolution enter robert trujillo art of rebellion etc etc great stuff and i think they had an impact too all because of one fucking Pepsi. He just wanted one Pepsi, Marcus. <laughs> Sometimes I try to do things and they just don't turn out the way I want it to. And I get real frustrated. And it's like I take my time and I try real hard. But no matter what I do and no matter what I try, it never works out. It's like I concentrate on it real hard, but it never works out. It's like I need some time to figure these things out. But there's always someone there going, hey, Mike, you know, we've been noticing you having a lot of problems, you know, like talk about it, you'll feel a lot better. And I go, no, it's okay. I'm having some problems. I'll figure it out myself. Just leave me alone. I'll figure it out. And they go, why don't you talk about it? You'll feel a lot better. And I go, no, I don't want to. Just leave me alone. I'll figure it out myself. And they keep on bugging me. And it builds up inside. It builds up inside. You're gonna be as true tonight. You'll come up here with much tonight. You won't have any. Say the way what you just see the way. I'm not crazy. That debut record of theirs is strong as fuck. Institutionalized, I Saw Your Mommy, I Shot the Devil. Yeah, just a badass record. Fascist Pig, another great one on that record. Memories of Tomorrow. And really, uh, that sound evolved slowly over time as by 92 when you had The Art of Rebellion, which is a fantastic record from them as well. They had more of a metal sound and you had songs like uh, Nobody Hears. You had songs like I'll Hate You Better. I Wasn't Meant to Feel This into Sleep at the Wheel. What a great set of two songs. Do you know you're in the rocker's wheelhouse right now? Anybody who's listened to the show back in the day, they're all sitting there going, yeah, man, I remember. 
shit. Especially Lights, Camera, Revolution. Those two records, Art of Rebellion. And then before and after, hell, we got into Sarsipius and uh, the infectious grooves and all that, man. We really did. But right there, a lot of that is the seeds of how heavy music is going to get through into the 90s as well. Another band, believe it or not, people think of them as a 21st century concoction. But White Zombie actually started in 85 and did two albums in the 80s, in 87 and 89. I picked up on the second record, which was out on Caroline, I think, before they landed on Geffen and delivered La Sexorcista. Silly cartoon evil. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing uh, Thunderkiss for the first time. La Sexorcista was my first experience with White Zombie and just being like, yo, what the fuck is this? So different. I like it. I'll tell you what it is, Marcus. It's a heavy metal hard on Thunderkiss. Bam. So we've incorporated a few other streams into this crazy idea that we're bridging the 80s into the 90s. I want to introduce a concept to this whole crazy conversation, and I call it the 89s. The bands that put together their first albums and released in 89, and bands that have lasted. Some of them have changed into other things. But really, I think it's just an amazing part of this whole thing we're talking about. And I'll start with Typo Negative. You know why. They kind of created a whole genre of music in themselves. And Bloody Kisses is just a brilliant fucking album. All of their albums, like Dead Again, so good. And they consistently stayed great. And you can hear the punk rock influence in them. You can hear the metal. You can hear the thrash. You can hear the goth. And they took all of this crazy fringe music and then created their own fringe music that really, really people got into. It was a thing. It kind of had to be there. Their Roadrunner label mates, Fear Factory, also in the same kind of situation. Coming out of the 80s into the 90s, they're in the middle of this really great record label where all metal thoughts are encouraged. They do their thing, and they're a part of the next wave, along with Caius. And you know what that leads to. Stoner rock. <laughs> And eventually, Queens of the Stone Age. Too, oh, but, that too, definitely. <laughs> dude, when they played at Dobbs, they parked the bus out of front of Dobbs on South Street, and we just basically pulled the whole Willie Nelson in the back, you know, smoking all day, and uh, the windows, and stumbling out of Showtime with those guys. And uh, what a fun time. And I never got to do that, and I don't know why, with Monster Magnet, because Windor's from Jersey, and I never realized that we were involved with playing them so early on in their career like before they became a thing we were already in and i didn't even realize that we just loved the guy uh dave windorf is awesome and man that if you've ever talked to that dude or heard him talk in interviews he is a student of rock and roll and that cat knows his rock and roll really well he is so much fun to talk to and their music has been consistently solid over the years and I've seen them a couple of times, and I'm so glad I got to see them. I was actually worried for a while that I wasn't going to get to see them. Made it to a show, and yes, great music all the way through. The next band we're talking about, I had to go all the way to their hometown of Santa Barbara, California to see them. Really? Ugly Kid Joe, remember them? Of course I remember them. They did I Hate Everything About You, and oh. uh, Cats in the Cradle cover was another sure, one of their sure. big radio hits. 
and they had a bunch of other tunes. Those are the two that I remember the most. I liked them. They seemed more of a rock band or a harder rock band or yeah, like something a hard rock like metal that. band. Yeah. yeah, and they had like a couple songs that kind of got them more attention from alternative radio at one point. But they're part of that bridge. I think they're somewhere in the mix there. As is the one and only Marilyn Manson who I remember going up to see this festival. Soundgarden was there, and a lot of the bands on Interscope were there. That's where I saw Reverend Horton Heat for the first time. And this uh, new band from California, Marilyn Manson, was on the bill. And right away, you knew that you were seeing something that was going to be part of the next thing because it wasn't like anything else that was happening right now. I would got into Marilyn Manson a little late. At first, I saw him and was like, oh, man, that dude's doing what Kiss and Alice Cooper are doing. But he was doing it a whole different way. And uh, I'll tell you what, that day... The other bands played later, so he was around, and I was really surprised to see him walking around in the same clothes and makeup that he wore when he was on stage with his girlfriend at the time. I don't know if it was anybody famous or anything. It was the beginning, right? The very beginning. And just walking around, talking to fans, signing stuff and hanging out, and just being a guy who loves being in a rock band and having people like him and being new and having that happen is, as you know, quite intoxicating. And so many bands that really uh, were in the underground, I think you'd say, in their own scenes that didn't get to really plug in until later. But one of them that was already making things happen in the Seattle scene right off the initial burst of the world was Grunt Truck, a band we both liked. Grunt Truck, man, a product of Skinyard and The Accused, a great band. I remember hearing Crazy Love and Above Me. I didn't know about the band during their first album with Crucifunkin, which is a great song. I knew about them from the second album, Push, with Above Me and uh, Crazy Love and Slow Scorch. And boy, while they were part of that Seattle scene, they kind of had their own sound and their own style that was definitely on that bridge like Soundgarden was. And, you know, I didn't know this, but they got themselves caught up in a whole legal thing because they were with Roadrunner and Polygram wanted to buy out their contract for big money and Roadrunner wouldn't let them. And uh, I guess it really didn't lead to good vibes between them and the label moving forward. They even tried to file for bankruptcy as a way to get out of it, but it didn't work. Yeah, it's too bad what happened to Grunt Truck because they put together this really, really great music. I'm glad I found them because they had a really big impact on me in a positive way. And they're one of those bands, I think, that fit more on the bridge. And the vibe in Seattle, wall, I think fans were happy for each other for success, I think they were jealous of the Big Four's success and really felt that they were good enough and they wrote songs that were good enough to be at that level of success, too. Plus, a few years back, the Lost Grunt Truck album came out, and it is an excellent Grunt Truck record. Before we wrap up, Marcus, I just want to make sure people understand that we're not talking about a compendium discussion about all the music from the 80s into the 90s. We're talking about the bands that we think build a bridge the rock, hard rock for sure, for any alternative band that like to be loud or anything like that, to go from the 80s across a bridge to the 90s and beyond, because you can't get to the beyond if you don't get to the 90s, right? That's true, and looking back at history, you see the 60s into the 70s, some big changes on that bridge. 
70s into the 80s, there were some huge changes with punk and post-punk and the direction of rock and roll and how Van Halen and Quiet Riot changed the whole band scene in the 80s. And then you had the birth of Metallica and some of those bands. So all of this crazy bridge has happened at the end of these decades. And there's no way that anyone could have predicted that within the first two years of the new decade, things would happen for all these alternative underground kids in touring t-shirts were going to be the mainstream and really take over and that hard rock would be rejuvenated and given new life nobody could have predicted in 1988 and 89 that that was going to happen and that it was really just around the corner if you think about it a great time to be listening to music oh we were so lucky so lucky i know i was i was in the middle of fmqb days Working at MMR and just loving life in general and, uh, yeah, in the middle of a lot of neat stuff with some of the people in this episode. <laughs> just say that. Hey, if you've got anything you want to add to this conversation, you know, our door is always open. And like uh, Frazier, we're listening. We'd love to have you participate in this conversation. Please feel free to email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can find us on social media under the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And again, we'd love to hear your feedback. What do these bands mean to you? How did they impact your world as a person listening to this music at that time? I think they forget, they being the listeners, that we find that important. We really want to know these things because we don't just ask it because we go through the emotions. We really want to hear from you and ask anybody who has emailed us or reached out to us through the website, except for the Russian spam bots, that is. And uh, really, be part of the conversation. We really enjoy it, too. We're on the Pantheon Podcast Network, a product of Dark Doc Media. This has been The Bridge to the 90s. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And you're listening to the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.